Uh, You know, if you've been part of Mosaic for any period of time, that what we really do, what we spend our time doing is exploring the beauty of the redemptive story of God, all that he is, all that he has done. Uh, We explore the gospel. And in that journey of exploring the gospel, uh, over the last decade and a half, we have discovered some incredible things. Probably among those things, one of the most extraordinary is that we are not only recipients of God's grace, but we are participants in God's grace. And I think this is something that is often missed in the journey of the church, that we think we're doing life and we encounter the gospel and then God uh, reveals himself to us and we receive his grace and and then we, we know our eternal life is secure and then we live the rest of our life kind of surviving planet earth until we get to leave and go to heaven and then we have the card in the back to say, I, I know Jesus. But when you read scripture, that is not the story it tells. Uh, It tells a whole uh, uh, larger, more beautiful story than we can imagine. One that when we receive the grace of God and we are redeemed, that we are not only redeemed to survive this planet, but we are invited to participate in redemption as ambassadors of Christ, carriers of light, life, and freedom into the dark, broken, and unredeemed spaces of this planet. So we as a church over the last decade, have been experimenting with that invitation, right? And, and finding unredeemed places, finding broken places, finding hard places on this planet and engaging ourselves and our resources into those places to say, we can make a difference on behalf of God because he is working through us to redeem this planet. And it's been great, except that when we started doing that, we realized quickly that when you're gonna invade dark, hard spaces, the darkness bites back. In other words, broken things are hard. And so when you take them on, they don't just become easy. And we were reminded that Jesus, when he came into our story to redeem us as a human race, us as his people, uh, it came with a death and a crucifixion. It wasn't a happy story. It also came with the resurrection. And so the redemptive process by definition, because it invades the darkness, is also going to be hard on us, hard on our resources, hard on our energy, hard on our souls. And so we quickly learned that if we're gonna sustain mission, Uh, invading the unredeemed places on this planet, we're gonna have to do some seriously good soul care. We have to be really intimate with God because otherwise it is gonna erode our soul through the emotional uh, weightiness of being redemptive. And so we began to engage in soul care and the premise on which I have lived for quite a while now is that we are recipients of God's grace, redeemed and therefore secure in eternity, We are invited to be on mission with God, uh, redeeming the world in all of its hard places. And in order to sustain that mission, we need to do really good soul care so that we can be healthy to do the mission of God. That idea has expanded. It has evolved. It has grown into something I never imagined before. And it is the new part of my personal journey into the wonders of the gospel. Yes, everything I just said is true, but there's more to it than that. And I have over the last year begun to come awake to the new reality in which I find myself in the beauty and wonder of the gospel. 
So in our journey over the last year or so, in my family, because of the dynamics of my family and because of the realities of blendedness in my family, there's a lot of things we gotta work through and think through. And so that has caused us over the last couple of years to do a lot of study and reading, or rather my wife to do a lot of study and reading and then summarize for me in books that deal with the effects of trauma on our lives, in our childhood, in our growing up, in the events that happen to us. And how having traumatic events in your life affect the neurology of your brain and the neuropathways and things that develop uh, in different ways that then affect the way we think, feel, and behave. And so we've had to dig into how our physiology works and how we are impacted by the realities of the heart. And in that journey, uh, we've had some amazing gospel-centric therapists that have been working with us to navigate the waters of all the different things that we work through, and they've been able to bring incredible insights to the table as we begin to look inwardly into our own lives and see how in our home, as we are all stirred up by the realities of our outer experiences, that that is a space that needs some redeeming. So I have discovered, though I am redeemed and my future is secure and my eternality is secure, that there is a process biblically where I am being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, which means by definition that there are still spaces in me that are dark, that are unredeemed, that are, uh, that are still broken, that need some work. Now, they do not affect my eternality, God's love for me, God's grace for me, God's delight in me, but they affect my life. And they don't affect it real well. And they need some invading. They need some redeeming. And I am invited, as you are, as a a Christ follower, to go and invade the spaces within me that are still unredeemed, broken, and dark. And so this new evolution took place in me that I began to realize that my mission on this planet is not exclusively an external one, and all my internal stuff is just to sustain this external mission. Part of the mission that I'm invited into, as are you if you know Jesus, is not only to discover and invade the unredeemed spaces out there, but to discover and invade the unredeemed spaces in here. See, I think a lot of times when we become a believer, we think Jesus just covers all our stuff, right? All that crazy broken stuff, bing, magically fine now. And then every time we face it, we pretend that Jesus is enough. Now he is enough. I'm not saying you're gonna tweet that, Renault said Jesus isn't enough. No, he's enough. But he's not enough in the way we sometimes play him. And so we say, Jesus covers my brokenness. Well, no, he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to face it, to invade it, to see it redeemed on our progressive journey on this planet. And so I have begun to figure out what it means to go in here and to discover where it's still broken, where it's still dark, where it's still unredeemed, and with God, go on mission into my own heart to see the beauty of his redemption invade those dark spaces. So uh, we went on vacation two and a half, uh, well, three weeks ago now. Uh, We left for vacation, and part of our vacation, uh, we go to Kennecook Camps, which is in Branson, Missouri. It's a week-long family camp where the kids kind of are with a bunch of counselors and people and, and have a blast and some fun. And then we are with the parents, and I get to speak there for an hour each day to the parents. 
And so each year as I'm praying through what it is I'm supposed to bring to the table to those parents, it became apparent to me that this new evolution, this new expansion of understanding that our mission is to invade our own dark spaces was what I really needed to and wanted to bring to the table. Except that generally, if you have a new idea and you haven't confirmed that it's scriptural, don't tell anyone because it's probably stupid until Jesus says it's real, right? Because my ideas are not necessarily good ones, but when they align with his ideas, then I know that they are right. So over the last few months, since I knew that I would be going to Kennecook, and this is what I wanted to bring to the table, I began a journey asking, does this get confirmed in here? that you are inviting us to invade in here as much as you are inviting us to invade out there the darkness and the brokenness. And I discovered something absolutely wondrous that has been right in front of me the whole time and I've never seen it. So you all know that right now we are in the book of Acts, right? Now you go, no, 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 we're in the book of Romans. No, we're in the book of Acts. The reason we're doing the book of Romans is because we're with Paul in the book of Acts and Paul's currently writing the book of Romans, so we're doing the book of Romans, but we're actually in the book of Acts and that's where we actually are. And so as you remember now, suddenly the clarity comes, oh yes, we're in the book of Acts, but we're doing the book of Romans because we're with Paul in the book of Acts, writing the book of Romans. And so in the book of Acts, we have been journeying for quite a while together as a church, and in the early part of the book of Acts, the church is born, the the early New Testament church is born in Jerusalem through Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word. Then things go really well for a while, and then persecution from the world, they invade the world, the world bites back, comes hard, and some things happen in Jerusalem. Paul has Stephen stoned, some other things occur, and the church as we know it in Jerusalem scatters throughout the known world. They all go back home where they came from. Once they scatter, uh, events continue to happen, some beautiful and miraculous events and some very difficult events with uh, dealing with persecution. And at a certain point in the book of Acts, Uh, We have Herod who gets really ticked off at this new movement of the gospel. And so through a sequence of events, he causes James, the disciple of Jesus, to have his head chopped off. He murders James or has James murdered. At the point that James is murdered, they find Peter and they arrest Peter. So Peter's in prison. James is murdered. Peter escapes from prison miraculously through an event where an angel opens the doors and Peter goes back to the local church and he says to them, things are heating up a ton, I've gotta go underground a bit. Now, here's the deal. When you're on an airplane and you're flying, when should you get nervous, right? See, I figured it out. If you're on the plane and the plane's bouncing up and down and the wings are bending this way and that and it's doing this, if the flight attendant is quietly walking down the aisle, would you like a Coke or would you like a water? Then you can just chill because they're, they're playing and they're like, no, 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 get Coke or water, please. And then you just, but we're fine. Now, what you should know is when the plane is moving a little weird for you and you see the flight attendant, uh, then you should get nervous, okay? Because they know, they've been on this thing a long time. They are leading you out. And so if they get nervous, you get nervous. If they don't get nervous, you don't get nervous. And Peter is the leader of the early New Testament church and suddenly he's nervous. And so what happens to the church? The church gets nervous. Now remember, here's this early New Testament church. Peter is nervous, James is dead. And what do they have to turn to to be able to navigate these crazy waters? 
They have zero writings. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They haven't been written yet. They don't have 1 Peter. They don't have Thessalonians. They don't have uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians. They don't have 1st or 2nd Corinthians. They don't have Romans. They have none of these writings that we turn to in the midst of trying to get instructions. They have zero. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, born of Joseph and Mary, who has now become a Christ follower, following his half-brother, is in Jerusalem. He is the leader of the, the Jerusalem church, and he sits down to write a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit to the scattered church to say, I know things have heated up. I know things are hard. Let me write to you instructions on what it means to follow Jesus. So the book of James, as we know it, is the very first letter that the entire early New Testament church will encounter as an instruction as to how to do the life of following Jesus. You with me so far? And where does James begin other than the greeting? James chapter one, verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that it is the testing of your faith or the refining of your faith that develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Is that an external reality or an internal reality? James begins by saying, pay attention to what's going on in here. Do not get afraid, because what's happening out here, God is using it to work in here. So you're going to be okay. Then right after that, guess what he does very next? In the book of James, he says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom in the middle of a trial, don't be afraid because God will give generously to you. So just ask God for wisdom. So again, now it's like, I'm struggling in here. I don't know what all this means. I need wisdom. Ask God. Then he says, now, if you're going to ask God for wisdom and he gives you wisdom, then you better believe what he says. Because you know how we roll, right? We go to our wise counsel, not with a question, but an agenda. That's how we usually do it. We have planned our speech so we can bring it to them so that they can agree with our incredible wisdom. And when they don't agree with our incredible wisdom, then we just find a new wise counsel. And so if we behave toward God this way, God, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And then he shows us and we don't like what he shows us and we do it our way. Then, then James says this, if you don't believe God when he shows you wisdom, then you'll be tossed to and fro like a, a little person in a little boat on a bunch of waves. You don't want to live like that. Then right after he says, when you're dealing with this and you're trusting God for wisdom and you're believing his wisdom and his way and you're doing it his way, remember this. And he says, if you're rich, don't think too highly of yourself. If you're poor, don't think too lowly of yourself. Why? Because we tend to evaluate our status, our value, our, our significance by what we have. And he goes, you need to think rightly of yourself, which is how Jesus thinks of you. So whether it's too high or too low, don't do that. This is a space where we're in Christ together. Then he goes from there and he says, listen, um, if, you, if you are going to step into this, remember this. And then we find the famous verse that we always quote out of the book of James, right? Everything's internal so far. And then he says, now listen, if you want to know what kind of religion is pure and holy, here it is. Serve the widows and the orphans in their distress and don't buy into the insanity of this culture or don't be polluted by the ways of the world, right? So we think that's an outward reality because we always use that verse like James was the first one to send us out into the orphans and widows. Actually, it's an inward reality. Don't buy into the insanity of this culture. Make sure that you're constantly aware of what's going on inside because when you do, the kind of religion that will be pure and holy pouring out of you is you caring for the external world. Right after that verse, guess what James does? 
He says, now if you're going to look at the word of God and it's going to invade your space and you're going to ignore what it shows you, you're like a man or a woman that looks in the mirror in the morning and you see yourself and the horror that the world is about to encounter with your hair doing this and your makeup streaking down or your, your beard going over and, and you are going to walk into the world ignoring what you just saw. So, so we don't do that, do we? We look in the mirror so we can evaluate what's not put together and put it together, right? And he goes, if you're gonna ignore the word of God and what it's showing you, then you are ignoring what you see inside. That's an internal reality, not an external reality. Then after he deals with that, he jumps straight from the whole idea of, of the word of God into identity and he talks partiality again and he says, now let's talk in more detail about where we get our value from and he says, don't evaluate yourself uh, by what you're, what, whether you're rich or poor or famous or not, evaluate yourself by the fact that you belong to Christ and he goes into an entire system of that. That's an inward reality again. Identity, remember who you are in Christ. Then he deals with real faith, remember this? Now, if you want to know what real faith is, faith without works is dead. It's not about the works. It's about whether it's real or not. So he says, evaluate whether what you do lines up with what you believe. And if it doesn't, maybe you don't believe rightly, right? Is that an inward or an outward reality? It's an inward reality. Again, then right after faith, he jumps into the tongue and he says the tongue is a dangerous tool. These words come out and they, they kill people and, and they hurt people. But then he says the tongue is connected to the heart, to the mind. The problem is in here. So you've got to evaluate this so what comes out here isn't terrible, right? It's not about the tongue. It's about what goes on in here. And so it's an inward reality again. Then he goes into God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom and he deals with us believing God's way instead of our way. What is that? An outward or inward reality? It's inward again. Trust God. Know God. Understand God. And when he bounces from there, he goes into boasting about tomorrow and says, don't do that. Uh, Make sure you realize who you are. That's an inward reality with an outward expression. Then he jumps into suffering and how to handle suffering. And then he ends in chapter five with this. Now, in community, make sure you confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Is that an outward or an inward reality? Well, it's inward. Take your stuff and bring it to the table. Yep, no, it's okay. We've dealt with it. Bring it to the table so that the community can be part of the healing process of your stuff. And the book of James closes. There is no mission running around, changing the world, external care for your soul. The entire first book going out to the early church was about how we deal with us and God, and how we allow him to invade our spaces, and how we invade with him. So I'm standing looking at the book of James, and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, this is our mission, along with the external mission. This is not just a consequence of trying to sustain the external mission. It's actually part of the mission, and I'm super excited, and I get in the car. We roll in with our sprinter van on Thursday, right on during VBS. My kids are all serving here. We have lunch packed. They jump in the car, and we eat lunch as we head on our 14-hour trip to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, arriving at 1.37 a.m. in the morning, and all is set, our stops planned, and off we go. And I say to God, I'm going to Kennecook, I've got to unpack this awesomeness with the book of James, the only problem is, I'm not totally sure how it all plays out in everyday life, and so over the next week, if you would be so gracious as to show me, that would be awesome. Stupid, stupid, (laughs) stupid. God is so good. So... God apparently knew several amazing circumstances would take place that would lend themselves beautifully to his great showing. 
The first took place about two hours into our trip. We were rolling up I-4, we were about to get on 95. I'm in the Sprinter, this thing's a beast, nothing stops it. I literally, one of my kids have just said, can we watch the first DVD? And I'm thinking, oh yes you can, because that's two hours of silence. And so I'm getting that ready, and we're rolling out, and, and, the, and the, the Sprinter van cruising on cruise control suddenly goes like this. And I'm like, huh, that was totally not normal. And so I did what every good person should do in a circumstance like that. I engaged my dysfunctional optimism and I went, it's okay. It was just random. It won't do it again. If I just keep rolling and pretend it didn't happen, it'll be fine. And so I kept rolling and it happened again. And my wife looked over at me and said, is that normal? And I proceeded to say, not totally, but I think it's gonna be fine. When it happened the third time and it started rattling underneath and one of my kids in the back said, Dad, something's rattling under my feet. I was like, we should probably pull over before we die. And so I pulled over on the side of I-4. I called my mechanic back here and I'm like, there the are things rattling. And he's like, it's a sprinter. It could be tri- 10 trillion things if it's rattling. So he goes, can it drive? I go, yes. And we drive very slowly on the side of I-4 and uh, into Daytona Beach. And I pull into a gas station and I pull forward nose first into a parking space. I turn the car off and I call. And then he goes, okay, well, I call a couple of mechanic places and I find one that will look at the car. So I turn it back on, I put it in reverse and I accelerate and nothing happens. And I knew in that moment, either the axle came off the transmission, please God, let that be true, or the whole transmission is out. Well, I have great news. It turned out to be the transmission. So it was awesome. That's only a few thousand dollars, many, many. And so uh, it's in reverse and I'm like, I have a sprinter with no transmission on my 14 hour trip to there. My kids are like, what's going on dad? And I'm like, don't worry about it. It's probably nothing, but we'll see. And so I get them all out of the car. There's a Holiday Inn Express that I see there. I'm like, we're going to go sit in the lobby of the Holiday Inn Express. I go in, I look at the lady. I'm like, look, my eight kids and wife are going to be in this lobby. If you don't want them, I can have you killed. It's okay. No, I didn't say that. I said, uh, if you wouldn't mind, and she was gracious and said, sure, they can hang out here. And so I knew she had no idea what she just signed up for, but it's all good. And so I, I'm in the lobby making phone calls. What do I do? I got a tow truck and this. And my kids engage into that space that teenagers do when all things are unfolding. They look at me and they realize dad is our hero. He has our best interest in mind. He's working diligently and faithfully to sort this problem out. And when he is ready to bring us some information, he will graciously walk over and say, I've made all the phone calls I need to make. Here's what's going on and here's the plan. No, they didn't do that. They're normal, normal humans like the rest of you. And so they're anxious too, and they're nervous. So they're coming up to me every five minutes. Did you find out what it was yet, dad? Still dialing, still talking. I don't know. Are we going to go on vacation? I have no idea. Uh, When is it going to be fixed, Dad? I don't know. Do we have to be in this lobby all day? I have no idea. Leave me alone. Next phone call. So that's going on. I get in the van. We finally figure out it's the transmission. I get the thing towed. I, get, I come back. And then, and then the big question, right? Do we still go on vacation? Because now we're in Daytona Beach and we're only two hours from home. And so the discussion happens. Do, do we just get someone to come up and get us and come home? And I just, I see it all in front of me. I'm like, we go home 
multiple homicides. I mean, I know it, it's, it's coming. So I'm not doing that. We are going on this vacation if it's the last thing we do. And so it's, it's, it's 526 and I call Enterprise and, and I'm, do you have a 15 seater passenger van? And they're like, we do, but we close at 530. I'm like, Uber, man, I'll be there in three seconds. Um, and and I, I shoot over to Enterprise, I get there at the nick of time. I, so, so I'm not thinking through things like cargo room or stuff. I just like, give me a 15 seater passenger van. I grab the van, I roll to my wife, pick my wife and kids up. We get to the Sprinter. Now, a Sprinter has a house of cargo room behind the back seat. You can put a house in there, right? A 15-seater passenger van, when you remove the rear seat, also has a fair amount. But apparently, the rental cars lock those puppies down with bolts so you can't remove them. Because I had a plan. Rear seat comes out, goes in the Sprinter. They fix the Sprinter. Rear seat doesn't come out. You know how much cargo room is behind the rear seat when the 15-seater passenger van has all 15 seats in it? I will tell you, you can't fit a boogie board back there. <laughs> dink, dink, dink. So my wife is standing looking at the back of the Sprinter with a house in it of stuff for three weeks of vacation and she's looking at the van and, and she's crying. That's not going in there with the kids. So I said to her, well, we leave the kids. We just take the luggage. <laughs> I mean, that's a simple solution. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I love my kids. And so we're like, okay. So I grab her by the shoulders and I say, honey, if there's any human being on this planet that can take that and figure out how to fit it into that and get our eight kids seated into that, it's you. You're gonna do this. And like Mary Poppins, she did. I'm telling you, every single thing in that van ended up in another van, stacked on seats, seat belted down. Put, and the kids were like, now this is what we call caving. It's really awesome, except you get to do it without a helmet. Cole, you crawl into that back corner, seat belt comes over you. But Hannah's like, I sit where? I'm like, I'm sorry, but it's going to be really tight. So they all learned claustrophobia as a new word. We're in this little seat van with luggage everywhere. The only plus was the luggage was so high, it was like a limo. There was a wall between us and the kids. We're like, you guys okay back there? Yep. Great. Let's roll on. We drove in that thing an unbelievable distance. And I'll tell you, my kids were champs, man. Unbelievable. No DVD player. Did I mention that? So the nice package of planned DVDs down and my kids just rolled on through that. It was awesome to watch. So we're in the van and all this is happening. And right before I picked up the 15 seater van, or right after I picked it up and I picked my wife up and we're at the sprinter and she's looking and she's crying and I'm like, we're going to do this. God speaks and says, welcome to the book of James. Welcome. You asked how this works? I'll show you how this works. The world goes nuts and it doesn't go the way you want it to go and circumstances unfold and you get stirred up, frustrated and mad and, and irritated and people are irritating you and stuff and, you go, and, and it reveals what is in you that is yet not the fruit of the spirit. And then when it's revealed, you have a choice. You can either run with it or you can go on mission with me. And if you run with it and you just live in the irritation, I'll still love you. You still get to go to heaven. I still delight in you, but you're not on mission. And if you want to go on mission with me into the hard internal spaces, then right in the middle of the great reveal of your brokenness and darkness coming up, you get to say, all right, God, I'm with you. You're with me. Can we go in there and figure this thing out? And so you engage. And so despite all those circumstances, that day went pretty well. We got on the road at 8.23 in the evening. Uh, we were supposed to be getting off 95 then, heading toward, and we drove, and by God's grace, I don't know how, because usually around 1 a.m. I get tired. We just drove and drove, and we kept saying when we get tired, we'll stop. We never got tired, and we arrived at 7.23 in the morning at the beach house, <laughs> rolled in, and we were ready, and God was good. And we had a great time at the beach house. While we are at the beach house the first three days, 
Uh, all is well now. I figured out how to invade the internal spaces of my life, and I'm so happy about that because from now on, it's going to go really well. Uh, and I make a decision the first three days. Usually, I've got all my cameras out, and I'm taking thousands of pictures and then spending two hours at night editing them and then post them on Facebook for your benefit and for the benefit of the world. And I realized that's stupid because uh, you all are awesome, but I want to actually be with my kids. And so I put all the cameras away. I had a few out. I took a picture here or there, but for the most part, I lived life through these eyes instead of from behind the lens for three days, and it was awesome awesome. Then on a particular day, we rolled up into Kitty Hawk to a place called um, Jockey's Ridge where these giant sand dunes are, okay? And God began to show me the next event in which I realized how the book of James works. So we get there and as we're rolling in, I see this dark cloud over Jockey's Ridge and one of my kids says, dad, do you think it's raining over there? And I go, no, because I am a dysfunctional optimist. And I go, no, 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 that's not a rain cloud. And it looks to the, a little to the left, so we'll be fine. So we roll the 30 minutes to Jockey's Ridge. We get there as we pull into the parking lot, not kidding, literally the first drops fall on the window. I'm like, let's, let's jump out and go. So we roll and I hear a thunderclap, right? So I'm, I'm like, okay, choice. All of us stay inside the death trap, 15-seater van, cooped up together, 10 human beings. No, that's definitely not going to work. So we find this little wooden shelter. We're outside. It's pouring around us. And my, my, my eight teenagers are like, literally, there's a bench. And, and the 10 of us squeezed in. And I'm looking at the thing checking lightning. And it literally says, I'm not kidding. I wish I'd taken a picture of it. A, a nearest lightning strike in the last minute, 0.01 miles away. And it, right underneath it says, run for shelter. And it, those were the actual <laughs> words. And I'm like... That, we're going to climb a sand dune, everybody, and stand on the top and wave, right? And I'm like, no. So I tell the kids, guys, we can't go now. Look, look, run for shelter. This is what we call shelter. We're going to huddle down here, and the kids begin doing what we, we humans do, right? They go, Dad, thank you for being so conscientious and trying to save our lives from the lightning, and I'm sure the storm will pass in good time. In the meantime, we'll sit here and sing a worship song together. No, they start going, how long is the rain going to be? I, I, I don't know. It looks to be moving fairly fast, but it's slower than I thought. When's it going to stop? I mean, is the lightning really that dangerous? And we're going back and forth, and I'm like, we're not leaving here until there's no more lightning. And at one point, I actually thought, maybe we should just go with the lightning. I mean, what's the worst that could happen, <laughs> right? So eventually, it kind of fades. It's drizzling now. The lightning's further away. So we roll out to the sand dunes, and on our way up the sand dunes, I'm already frustrated because of the event under the little shelter, and I'm kind of a little ticked at them, and they're kind of a little ticked at me. And we're rolling up the sand dunes, and I have my cameras with me because... On these sand dunes, there are some pictures we need to get. They're traditional pictures. We get them every year, jumping and stuff. And we're doing it this year, and that's the way it's going to roll. So we get up to the top of the sand dunes, and I gather my eight children. I'm, all right, people, we're going to do this. And none of them want to take pictures. Cole goes, my 10-year-old, we're going to take another stupid picture. And I'm like, we've taken none for three days. Welcome to this little space. So I go through, and you know how it goes. You get eight of them lined up, and this one's looking over here. And I'm like, come on, it's just a picture. But I need like 17 takes of it. And, and so they start getting irritated and I'm getting irritated. And finally we get the one picture and then I want to get ahead of them on the sand dune. So when they're running down the sand dune, I'm like hitting them from the bottom. So they're running ahead to the sand dune and I'm not ready. And so I'm shouting, no, stop. And, I, and one of my kids ignores me and they're just cute. So I run after them and I get to them and I'm screaming at them like, you know what? You're the one you, we weren't listening and your face looks weird. And I'm going to post it on Facebook just like that. And you're going to hate it. And I'm shouting, you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. And so I look up and I realize all these strangers on the sand dunes are kind of, you know, doing the glance over like, is it a kidnapping? I'm not really sure. And so my wife graciously comes over to me and she says, genuinely, in the nicest, most careful way, she goes, you, you, you need to stop. 
And, and I look at her, and I, in that moment, the Spirit of God does in me what he needs, and I go, thank you for correcting my, no, I don't do it. I look at her, and the first thing I do is I'm like, I need to stop. It's these eight crazies. I tried it, and I tried, and I've just had it, and this, is this, and, and she looks at me, and she says, the kids are just trying to have fun, and you're spoiling it with these pictures. But she says it real nice, like not like, just, and she goes, just let them have fun. So, in that moment, I pick up my camera equipment, I throw it on my shoulder, I look at my wife and I go, so if I'm spoiling the fun for everybody, then why don't I just leave and you stay here with the kids and I'll see you back at the car. And I walk down that sand dune, no kidding, and like a three-year-old, I head down the path. Boom, I'm out, you're in. And on my way, I literally think in my head, I'm the fun maker, not the fun spoiler. How dare they think I spoil the fun? Rolling down the path, baby, heading to the car. And the Spirit of God says, welcome to the book of James. Welcome. This is where it rolls, Renaud. And once again, he just gently says to me, you have a choice. Roll to the car like a three-year-old, sit there and ball, and wait for your wife to get back. Or you can go on mission with me. If you choose not to, I still love you. You still get to be with me forever and I still delight in you, but you're not on mission with me. So if you wanna go on mission with me right now, then you face this and you see what it is and you go with me in it and we will, we will begin. And so on that path, halfway down, I stopped and I turned around and I slowly made my way back. I did not apologize when I got there because that's too much mission for one day. <laughs> I was like, I ain't doing this. But I jumped in, pretended nothing happened, and we got back to our rhythm. And later on, I apologized and said, you know, that was not a great move on dad's part, and, and, and I, I, I shouldn't do that. And so we were on mission. Then we got to Kennecook. And the rest of the vacation at the beach house was great, and we got to Kennecook. And at Kennecook, it's really great because the, it's, like, it's like being on a cruise ship on land. It's all safe and secure with lots of uh, awesome uh, Christian counselors all over the place, uh, young college kids that my kids love. And you can kind of release the kids uh, when they leave in the morning, and you see them at 11 p.m. And so for them, they love it because they're like, it's just a great space of freedom for them that's still safe, and it's a great space for us not to have to parent them ongoingly throughout the day. So it's good for both of us for a, for a brief moment of time. And so we rolled in and we had a great time at Kennecook. I jumped into the book of James with the parents and I gained new insights into this world and these stories that were emerging and a few others were, God was using them to stir me and I was excited, honestly, to invade the internal spaces, to get back here and to jump in and it was gonna be awesome. At the end of Kennecook, we jumped in the van uh, we, had, we had traveled in that little 15-seater van 4,023 miles. I know because when I handed it back, the guy looked at me and he looked at the thing and he said, is this right? And I said, yep. And he goes, boy, you, you, you sure are happy that it was un- uh, unlimited miles. And I'm like, yeah, I double-checked that before I left because 4,000 miles is a lot. Um, so that means we were in the car for 58 and a half hours, actually in the car in two and a half weeks. And so this last round, we're going from Kennecook to Blue Ridge, Georgia, and everyone's tired. The Kennecook camps was great, but we're all tired. We're tired of driving. We're tired of being in the car. My kids are champs in the car until we get to Blue Ridge. And we get to the cabin there, and now something else is happening. The kids have had five days of essentially parent-free life, right? And we've had five days of essentially uh, uh, kind of kid-free life in that sense. And we all love each other, but parent and child is constantly at work every day, right? And now we have to get to this little cabin, and we have to readjust, to parent, these are the parents, and when they say things, then you know, you kind of, and you're the kids, and the first day is always a rough readjustment for them and for us. So we get to the cabin, and we're tired, we're irritable, we're done, and we're adjusting, and then when we get into this cabin, man, 
the first day just, it just did not go well. I mean, my kids are irritated with us. We're irritated with them. They're irritated with each other. They're fighting and bickering and they've done fantastic for two weeks and now it's just unfolding and Brooke is done and I'm done and I'm mad at Brooke for being mad at the kids and she's mad at me for being mad at the kids and mad at her and I'm mad at her for being mad at me and I'm mad at the kids for being mad at the kids and, and we were supposed to go whitewater rafting the next day and I'm literally thinking by the end of the day, why do we give these kids anything? I mean, we give them the world and all they figure out is the one thing they don't have. And I'm like, okay, well, why can't we do that? Because you're doing these 5,000 other things. And that's just, that's just normal, but it doesn't feel normal. And you're like, ah. And so we're good. And I had the thought, you know what? I'm going to cancel the stupid whitewater rafting and I'll show them. Because we're not going to do this. It's, it's expensive. It's, it's, uh, but I decide, you know, we're not going to do that. So we go to bed that night and and I'm, I'm genuinely discouraged, I really am, because I've come off Kennecook with all these new insights out of the book of James and all these new things, and I'm ready to go and engage in the internal spaces, and the first cabin we get to, uh, first day, I just blow it, right? I mean, I, I don't even want to deal with myself. In fact, I'm just justifying myself, and, and I look at the rest of my family, and I'm like, I mean, if I have to do internal work here and there and those eight and then there and that, it's never going to happen, man. And so at the weightiness, because you see, here's the thing. When it's circumstantial, a van breaks down or a sand dune incident happens, it's a pretty quick and easy fix. But when it's relational, that's not quick and easy because it usually goes back decades, right? I mean, if you're married, you know the stuff that you end up in fights with your spouse aren't about the here and now. It's all the residual stuff that comes from the last decade or two or three. It's the same stuff. It's always the same. I mean, isn't it fairly discouraging after 30 years of marriage, you look and you're like, you haven't changed one bit and I've been working for 30 tireless years to change you. We don't change much. We fight with the same stuff. We'd, we'd, and so you start realizing, I'm looking at all this and I'm like, man, the, the, the car thing and the sand dune thing, that's fine, but how do you do this? And I start realizing you don't. It's impossible. It's never going to happen. So I become discouraged and I'm just like, you know what? This is dumb. So the next morning we wake up, we go whitewater rafting, we load the kids. I'm kind of discouraged. We drive over there and we have a nice little talk in the car and I'm just neutral. We get to the whitewater rafting and we're standing getting ready to get in the boats. And it's a class one and two and three rapids, which aren't deadly, but they're decent because we, we have a 10-year-old, and so you have to be 12 to go in the class four and five. And so I'm happy about that, and we're, we're standing. And we're a large family, so there's like, there's like six boats and a bunch of people, and, and they start going through family such and such, you're with guide such and such, and family such and such, you're with guide such and such. And then they get to us, and like, Vanderate family boat one, uh, there will be a guide in another boat with you in the water. And I'm like, like as in not in our boat? I'm thinking in my head, and I'm like, and then, and so I'm thinking, well, I'll take that boat without the guide, and then the family, uh, Vanderit family boat two, you'll also have the same guide in the water, and you, and I'm like, hold on, hold on, you're going to put my wife on a boat, and me on a boat, with kids that are currently irritated with us, and we are currently irritated with, and tell us, guide them well, have them row when they're supposed to, in rapids, so the first thought I have is, oh my gosh, if the wrong kids get with Brooke, uh, that, that, that like, like butterflies and hitting each other and, and not rowing so much, then like it's going to be a disaster. But I can sit on the back of the boat and I can kind of like swing things. I, so I start immediately in my head like, okay, I've got to take him and her and her and she's going to get him. And he can row really well. And, she, and so I divide the, the boat up and I give Brooke the kids that, I, that I'm like, okay, they're going to row. And, and I get, now the kids in my boat ended up rowing like champs. I will tell you that because my voice was very loud. Um, <laughs> but we, we did our little pep talk and stuff. But I'm sitting in the boat and I'm realizing Oh my gosh, like this is gonna be an adventure even if it's just class one and two. So we're rolling down the river, 47 degree water. I mean, it's freezing. So you do not wanna go in it. 
and we're rolling down, and the class three rapid, the very last one's at the very end of our little stretch of the river, and then right after the class three rapid, you go to the side, and you gotta get out, because if you miss that, class four and five beyond that, death, so you don't wanna do that. So we're rolling, and Cole, my 10-year-old, the whole time he's going, Dad, am I gonna fall out on the class three rapid? It's because like a waterfall. I'm like, no, buddy, Dad's done this before. Trust me, it's gonna be fine. And so the, constantly throughout the, Dad, I don't want to fall out on the, on the, on the no, no, d- bud, it's, these boats are designed pop, pop, and it's no problem. And they are. And so I was telling them the truth. So we're rolling, we're rolling, and, I, and we're practicing little rowing things, and we're bouncing through some rapids. And we start approaching the class three rapid, and the guide says to me, so Brooke's first, and I see her pop through it. And I mean, you should see the photographs. I mean, three smiling faces of three kids, like, oh, dink. And Brooke's like, nee, 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 bling, bling. So I, I watch that, and I'm like, there's going to be a cakewalk. And the guide says, says one simple thing. When you go through the rapid, just don't go sideways. Go forwards. Because if you go sideways, then this rapid's deep enough that it could catch, and it'll flip the boat, and then all of you in the water. And no big deal if you are. You just bounce out. But, you know, they'll be freezing, and it won't be so great. So I got it. I'm like, sideways, not sideways. So we're heading toward this rapid, and we're going straight at it. But we're coming from the side. And as I'm turning, I'm doing the, okay, now kids, listen. When I say right side row, then you row on and left side backwards. You, you got this? Here, yeah, now we got it. And then we go. And then the second I start screaming, because I'm a little panicky, they get confused. And this one's rowing backwards. I'm like, no, the other way. And so we're going. And I realize at a certain point, the river's taking us now. I'm like, I cannot turn this boat fast enough from, from the back to go straight down this rapid. So the boat's drifting sideways, and so I realize uh, we're going sideways down, flip boat, not good, or we can go backwards, because backwards I can pull the boat around, and then I can guide it backwards, and we'll just go backwards straight through, which is no problem, it's still straight. The only thing I didn't anticipate is that I weigh twice as much as all my kids combined, (laughs) and I'm on the back of the boat, and they're on the front, and so when you take all the weightedness and you put it into a waterfall backwards, the boat doesn't bounce up, it goes down. And so as we get into the waterfall, this is what occurred. Take a look at that. Here we go. Cole's face. Uh, Not good. Not good. Okay. Watch the next one. Here we go. So fun. Oh, that's what happens when you go backwards, right? Except it gets better. Watch this. Yay. There comes Cole and Rahel right at me and I'm in a waterfall and it's swirling around me and the children are coming and I'm like, this is not good. The next picture is awesome. There's Cole (laughs) off the boat on the right-hand side, me on the boat still on the back. Wait for it, it gets better. Here it comes. Oh, we're gone. We're in a swirling whirlpool of death. Me and my son. The other three, they hit me, so I stopped them in the boat and Cole and I went into the water. Next picture. Yep, I'm back on the boat. I have no idea how, legitimately. I don't think I came off, and I have Cole with my right hand, and he is in the water. Next picture, I drag Cole, push the other kids forward, he comes up, and then the final picture, as we're still, notice, swirling in the waterfall, <laughs> Cole screaming, I have Cole, I'm on the boat, I'm soaked, he's soaked, the other three are piled on the back. Look at that, piled on the back. And I pull Cole back in. Now, listen, I have no idea Legitimately, I've thought it through a million times. I have no idea how I caught Cole. I really don't. 
He came by me so fast, and I don't know how my hand like this on an or in a waterfall, backwards, swirling water, saw Cole come, reached out, grabbed him by the life jacket into the water, blocked the other kids holding the oar, fell into the water, and while doing that, thought to myself, get your left foot jammed under the boat so that you don't go in the water with your son, and you can pull him back up, and it all worked. And the reason that I can't figure out how I did that is because I experienced it in real time. You see, you just watch the pictures, and this is what it feels like to you. There's Cole, and there's Renault. oh, we're going in the waterfall. Ah, reach out and grab my son and set the oar down while we're, oh, there comes Rahel, I'll push her this way. See, that's how you experienced it, didn't you? You wanna experience it in real time? Because I had my GoPro on my chest. You wanna see how this really felt? And then you'll know why I can't figure out how on earth I grabbed my son, stayed in that boat and pulled him back up. Watch this. Trust me, trust me. I got you. Climb up. I got you, buddy. I got you. You're good. You're good. That was crazy. So, we come out of the water. He gets back in the boat. He's freezing. We're still in the waterfall. We got to get out. So I look at Cole and I go, grab your oar, buddy. We got to get out of this waterfall. And he grabs it. And right after the waterfalls, when you got to get over to the right-hand side to get out of the river so you avoid the class four and five death traps. And so we come out of that waterfall and we have no time to waste because we're on the left-hand side. We got to get over to the right. I'm rowing. I see the guides panicking like this bozo is going to miss the pullout and we're going to have to go rescue his three children and we'll let him drown. And so I'm rowing hard and the kids grab their oars and they're giving it everything they got and we sneak into the, the, the off and we make it and they grab our boat and we are safe. And it's awesome. And we miss the death trap. And I get out of the boat and I check Cole and he's shivering and, I, and in that moment standing next to that boat, God speaks just to me. Just to me. And this is all he says. Renault, you haven't been the greatest dad the last couple days and the greatest husband. You've been irritated with your kids and family. I get it. It's totally fine. And yet, even though you're not the greatest dad, not the greatest husband sometimes, the second something happened with one of your kids, you didn't hesitate to reach out and grab him. And somehow, without thinking about it, your right arm went out and grabbed your son. And I remember having the thought in the boat, right when I grabbed Cole and I felt him go in and I felt myself going in and the other kids were following me, I remember distinctly having the thought, if he comes out of my hand, I'm going in the water after him. Like I knew it. I knew in that moment, he's not in that river without me. Either I get him back on this boat or we both in that water. I got him back in the boat and God says, so that whole time, as a decent dad and a decent husband, not a great dad or a great husband, you didn't hesitate to grab your son. And you're a human. How did you get your left foot jammed in and secured and your right arm out and grab him, but yet you did? Do you think for one second that me being a great husband to my church and a great dad to you every second of every day, that there will ever be a moment in your journey to invade the internal spaces of your heart that I won't reach out and grab you every time you fall in the river. 
every time you fail, every time you blow it, every time you can't do it, every time it's too much, every time you think the hill's too hard to go, every time you give up, every time you don't think, every single time I will reach out and grab you and pull you back in the boat. And if you think for a second my left foot isn't always secure, you haven't read the Bible because I am steadfast in all that I do. And so he said to me these words, same words I said to my son. I got you, buddy. It's okay. Now grab the oar because we got to get out of this waterfall. And I sat there and I knew in that moment, I have a long life ahead of me where I'm going to have to deal with a lot of internal stuff that still needs some undoing. And a lot of external stuff in the world that still needs some unredeeming. And some days it's going to be overwhelming and too much. And some days I'm not going to do it well. And some days the people around me aren't going to do it well. But every day, the God I serve is going to grab me by the back of my neck on that little life jacket and pull me back in the boat, pat me on the bottom and say, I got you, buddy. I got you. It's going to be okay. Now grab your oar because we got to get out of this waterfall together. And that is the God I serve. We're in the book of Romans because we're in the book of Acts. And I remembered a passage in the book of Romans that we're about to get to actually in the next couple weeks. And so you'll get to unpack this with the teaching team in much more detail. But in that moment, standing on that sidewalk, this is the passage that came to me. I want to read it to you and I want you to hear what God says to us in our insane missional journey of invading the hardest places of all ourselves. Listen, Romans chapter eight, verse 31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God right now, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the long day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, I say, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nor marital strife, nor teenagers, nor parents, nor all the insane things we all have will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We had a great vacation. And my kids did great, better than I ever imagined they would. For the most part, everything went really well. And in the little moments that were insane that you got to hear about today, God showed me this. I am invited to invade my spaces on mission with him because he is with me. And when I fail, when I fail, he's got me. He's got me. And I get to participate with him again, picking up an oar and rowing out of this stupid waterfall. And if I don't, then he'll get me out all by himself because he said this, the good work that I began in you, I will bring to completion with or without you. But you're welcome to join in the story. Let's pray. God, 
you're so good to us. You're so faithful to us. You're so powerful. And always, no matter how many times we fall into the freezing water and scream, I'm freezing, I'm freezing. Every time you have your hand on us, your foot secure, and you drag us back in the boat. Pat us on the bottom and say, I got you, buddy. Now pick up an oar and let's get out of this waterfall together. Thank you for being a good father. A good, good, good father. And thank you for having my back. It is so good to be in the boat with you, navigating the tumultuous waters of this life. Help us to find ourselves unafraid, not because the waters are not full of fear, but because you are in the boat with us. We love you, Jesus. Guide us, lead us, challenge us, and empower us to invade the dark spaces of ourselves and face them with courage because you are with us and you hold us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.